You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning. We're back in the book of Acts. We're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 22. We're looking today specifically at verses 17 to 29. It's been a journey all the way, going back all the way to uh, Palm Sunday. We departed from preaching through the book of Acts in order to uh, focus in on the Easter season and the, uh, the wonder and the beauty and, of course, the love that we know in the cross of Jesus Christ. But it is our custom here, as it should be, that we would go through books of the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, believing, knowing that the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scripture seeks to speak to us through the Scriptures. And in the same way that you might not appreciate writing a letter to a friend and having them kind of just jump and skip around and pick out little snippets of things you said, but in the same way that you would appreciate your friend whom you've written a letter to to actually read your letter all the way through, we believe we are called by God to work our way through the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter. So this morning we return to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 22. Paul is about to be on in front of the biggest, the biggest court in history. He's about to embark on a on a journey that will take him to stand before governors and kings and even even Caesar himself. We just sang this song a few moments ago. Lord, take me beyond where my feet can touch so that I will believe in you, that I will hope in you, that my faith will be strengthened. Call me out upon the waters. As we look this morning at this particular passage, And as we begin to work our way through the tail end of the book of Acts, and as Paul is making his defense time and again before countless governors and kings, we have here an example for how we are to live the Christian life. It is the testimony of the gospel that is to be our greatest treasure. And it comes with suffering. I invite you to read with me. We're going to read verses 17 to 29, then we'll pray and we'll get to work. The Apostle Paul, finishing his testimony, says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now up to this word, they had listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribute ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and he said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come this morning to your word. We finish off this last bit of Paul's testimony as he is testifying to the Jews who have gathered there in Jerusalem at the season of Pentecost and Passover. They are enraged at his testimony. They are angered by the claims that he is making about your son, Jesus. And they desire to kill him. Lord, this morning we just say thank you for Paul's courage, for his faith in you. 
and for being true to your son, Jesus, and speaking what is true. I pray this morning, Lord, that as we are reminded once again by the example of Paul, that your spirit would work in our hearts to rekindle a love for this world that is hostile to you, that is in opposition against you, and therefore will hate us as it hated your son before us. Lord, knowing all of this, we pray that your spirit would work in us in such a way that we would not rest until we had been faithful to proclaim the whole counsel of your word and to share the good news of what your son did for us on the cross. Lord, our prayer this morning is that there would not be in any of us a heart that is indifferent to the suffering of those around us. We pray that you would do this by your word, through your spirit this morning, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Eli Wiesel was a Jew born in 1928. He was imprisoned in two distinct and notorious concentration camps during World War II as a boy. He observed the murder of his sister and his mother. He was present for the death of his father, and he lived his teenage life every day wondering whether or not he would die that day. He survived, and he went on to publish a book in 1955 called Night, which became a bestseller and a Pulitzer Prize winner. And he was eventually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize as a result of his efforts to make known to the world what it was that the Jews suffered inside the concentration camps during World War II. Perhaps one of the greatest speeches given during the 20th century was made by Eli Wietzel at the White House on April of 1999 in which he discussed the reality of what they were facing and what he identifies as the most painful part of their experience during their time in the concentration camps was not the torture and it was not even the death that awaited all of them. The most horrifying thing that he identifies time and again was what they suspected to be the indifference of the rest of the world. Speaking in the Rose Garden, April 1999, outside the White House, he said, quote, 44 years ago to this very day, a young Jewish boy from a small town in the Carpathian Mountains woke up, not far from Goth's beloved Weimar, in a place of eternal infamy called Butchenwald. He was finally free that morning, but there was no joy in his heart. He thought there would never be joy again. Liberated a day earlier by American soldiers, he remembered their rage at what they saw. And even if this boy should live to be a very old man, he will always be grateful to those soldiers for that rage that he saw in their eyes and also for their compassion. Though he did not understand their English language, their eyes told him, what he needed to know, that they too would remember and bear witness. And now, Mr. President, I stand before you today, Mr. President, Commander-in-Chief of the Army that freed me, and tens of thousands of others, and I am filled with a profound sense of gratitude, abiding and eternal forever to the American people. And the place that I come from, Society was composed of three simple categories, the murderers, the victims, and the bystanders. During the darkest of times inside the ghettos and the death camps, what we felt most was abandoned and forgotten. Do you know what is worse than abandonment and being forgotten? The worst is the feeling that the world has not forgotten but is just completely indifferent to you. In a way, to be indifferent to suffering is what makes the human being inhuman. Indifference, after all, is more dangerous than anger and hatred. Anger can, at times, be creative. One writes a poem or a great symphony. One does something special for the sake of humanity because one is enraged at the injustice that one witnesses. 
But indifference is never creative. Even hatred at times may elicit a response. You fight it, you denounce it, you disarm it. But indifference elicits no response. Indifference is not a response. Indifference is not even a beginning. It is an end. And therefore, indifference is always the friend of the enemy, for it benefits the aggressor, never his victim, whose pain is magnified when he or she knows themselves to have been abandoned. The political prisoner in his cell, the hungry children, the homeless refugees, not to respond to their plight, not to relive, not to relieve their solitude by offering them a spark of hope, is to exile them from human memory. And in denying their humanity, we betray our own. We Jews felt that to be abandoned by God was worse than to be punished by him. We all said to ourselves in those concentration camps, better an unjust God than an indifferent one. For us to be ignored by God was a harsher punishment than to be the victim of his anger. What I want you to know today, my friends, indifference then is not only a sin, it is a punishment. It is God's punishment. Such moving words spoken by Eli Wiesel over 50 years after he was freed. When he saw those American soldiers liberating his camp, his first assumption, as he recounted in his book, was that he was just trading one guard for another one captor for another. He couldn't understand their language, but he saw something in their eyes that reminded him that he was actually a human being and that there was something of worth and value and dignity that he possessed that had been completely stripped of him during his time in the concentration camps. What really strikes me about this passage, indifference is not a beginning. It is an end. You've made a series of decisions that brings you to a place where you choose through the callousness and the hardness of your heart to ignore the plight of those around you, to be indifferent to whatever it is that plagues them. Now, Eli Wiesel, during his time in the concentration camps, came to a place where he suspected that God was indifferent to his suffering. I wonder if our neighbors might think that we worship the same kind of a God a God that is indifferent to their suffering, a God that is indifferent to their struggles. And how would they know or suspect that this might be the case with our God? They would know it, or at least they would suspect it, based on how we treat our neighbors. This morning, my question to you, First Baptist Church, is are you indifferent to your neighbor? Are you indifferent to their deepest need? As we look at the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 22, as we conclude his testimony, one of the things that stands out to me is that this is a man that is being battered from all sides. In one particular moment, he's trying to give testimony to Jews. In the next moment, he's trying to give testimony to the Romans. In one moment, he's testifying to those who are religious. In another moment, he is testifying to those who are utterly pagan. He is swinging wildly from one extreme to the next. And in each moment, he is confronted with a different set of circumstances that require him to think quickly on his feet. And as you can all relate, having endured the ups and downs and the radical adjustments of the last year, when your situation changes radically from one moment to the next, we are all tempted in exhaustion to throw up our hands and say, I quit. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do or say, now I'm just going to retreat within myself. That is not the example we have from the Apostle Paul. As he continued to rally himself to his audience, be it Jew or be it Roman, his concern in every moment was to secure an audience that he might proclaim the gospel every time. Is that your concern? Look with me. We pick it up in verse 17. 
And just to remind you of the context here, this started all the way back in verse 28. They had caught him in the temple and they had cried out against him to one another saying, men of Israel, come help us. The accusation they had made against him in verse 28 was this. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, against the law and against this place, the temple compound. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled it. All of these accusations were false, but that is what they accused Paul of doing. Okay, So this was the accusation. He stands up in the midst of having just been beaten, bloody, having been seized by Roman soldiers, and he says, may I say a word? In that moment in which you and I would be so grateful for the opportunity to be dragged away to a comfortable, cozy prison cell where people are not spitting on us, trying to tear out our beard or beat us to death, Paul's instinct in that moment was, I need to share my testimony. And he begins from the beginning. He walks his way through how it was he encountered Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And now he comes here to the tail end when he is wrapping up his testimony only to be interrupted again. Beginning in verse 17, he says, When I had returned to Jerusalem after my whole journey, I was praying in the temple. And now he has to come to the harsh reality of what exactly God had called him to do with regards to his native people, his kin, the Jews. I fell into a trance, verse 18, and I saw him, God, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And they said, and he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. His response to their accusations is number one, I was praying in the temple. I was not defiling the temple. And number two, I have left this country to go to the Gentiles because God has called me to. He recounts his Damascus Road experience. And a number of people, a number of scholars reflecting on this have made the suggestion, and I think it originates with an individual who wrote this book called A Man in Christ, an individual by the name of James Stewart, a biblical scholar, Starting with him and the number of scholars after him have suggested that what Paul was experiencing was a dissatisfaction with his Jew- Judaism. He had come to a place where he recognized he could not satisfy the demands of the law. He knew there was something wrong. And therefore, when he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, he was ready to jump ship on Judaism and to embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah. James Stewart in his book, A Man, a, a Man in Christ, makes the statement, quote, feelings of doubt and disillusionment had crept into the Apostle Paul's heart. Was he perhaps on the wrong track after all? Had he accepted a lie instead of the truth? He knew he was missing the mark and he was unhappy. This does not conform to Paul's own testimony, though, about his experience. He tells the Philippians in chapter 3, his letter to Philippi, quote, as far as righteousness based on the law, I was blameless. Now, we know he wasn't, but he thought himself to be. Prior to his conversion, Paul, at that time known as Saul, didn't perceive himself to be in a miserable plight from which he needed to be delivered. He persecuted the church because he believed that those who were not properly Jewish were a contagion, an infection that needed to be exterminated. Nor is there any hint in that text or any other text that Paul's conscience was haunted by the death of Stephen, causing him to rethink his persecution of the church or causing him to rethink his theology. There's no indication of that. Paul did not come to Jesus Christ out of a deep sense of need or a dissatisfaction with Judaism What caused this dramatic change in the Apostle Paul's life, according to his testimony, as he's given it for us here in Acts chapter 22, was that Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, confronted him, and told him that what he was doing was a persecution not of erroneous Jews involved in a heresy. What Paul was doing was persecuting Jesus Christ himself, and he 
was the Lord. Jesus proclaimed that to Paul, and Paul was confronted with the truth of the gospel, and as a result of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, Paul was converted. It wasn't as a result of dissatisfaction. It wasn't a result of psychological disharmony. He wasn't struggling. He wasn't conflicted. His conscience wasn't bothering him. Jesus confronted him, and his conversion was supernatural from start to finish. That's what happened to Paul. And that's what he shares with them in his testimony. As regards the accusation that they make against him, that he's going all over the world and teaching Gentiles everywhere against Jews, against the law, against the temple, he explains that his call to go to the Gentiles comes from God himself. And he even indicates that his heart's desire was to stay behind and to try to witness to the Jews. He responds in verse 18, he says that God said to him, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. They will not listen to you. Therefore, it is not worthy of your time. It is of no use or value for you to stay here and continue sharing the gospel with the Jews. They won't listen to you. And Paul argues and he says, yeah, I think they might. I've got a pretty good case to make here. They said, really? What's your case? Well, number one, I killed Christians. I was sold out and passionate. I had letters from the chief priest. I was his guy. I was traveling all across Israel, Palestine. I was arresting Christians wherever I could find them. I killed these guys for a living. I was completely convinced that Christianity was wrong, and yet Jesus saved me. It would be similar to... Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the previous leader of ISIS or ISIL in, the, uh, in northern Syria, it would be similar to this man who is a, an avowed terrorist, a worshiper of Allah, a follower of the most brutal version of Islam. It would be similar if this individual, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, were to convert to Christianity. I mean, if if he were to have been saved as opposed to killing himself with a suicide vest, if he were to have confessed faith in Jesus Christ and offered himself up to the authorities for the legal punishment that he deserved for his crimes, Christians everywhere would have rejoiced. Praise God, this was supernatural. A hardened, murderous thug was saved by Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was saying. This is clear evidence that you are real, God, that I was saved. But now ask yourselves a question. If, rather than killing himself with a suicide vest, as he did, if Baghdadi had converted to Christianity and had stood up and proclaimed the gospel, what do you think those who are closest to him would have done? If you think that they would have fallen down and repented and believed in Jesus Christ, I think you're far more optimistic than I am. I would hope and pray that the Holy Spirit would use that testimony to save some of them, but I'm convinced that the majority of them would have turned on Baghdadi and tried to kill him. The heart is hardened against the gospel. Paul says, Jesus, they'll listen to me Because I tried to kill Christians, and yet I'm saved. I am a living testimony. I am evidence. I am proof myself that you are real. And God says, no, just go. Get out. He makes the statement again in verse 21. Go, for I will send you far away for the Gentiles. And so he continues to argue. He says, you know what? What about the blood of Stephen, the first martyr killed all the way back in Acts chapter 7? He says, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. These people know me. They know that I was one of them. We were together in the killing of Stephen. They saw me taking care of their garments while they threw stones at him. 
In other words, not only do they know my thoughts and my theology of my previous life, but we have a relationship. We are friends. We did things together, horrible things to be sure, but once upon a time, we were in this together. Surely, on the basis of my relationship with them, they will listen to me. And again, God says, no, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And what really illustrates the hardness of their heart is their response. As soon as Paul makes this statement, verse 22, up until this word they had listened to him. Remember at the beginning of his testimony, he began to speak to them. They fell silent and they listened and they listened. And then when he says, God sending me away to the Gentiles to share the good news with those of the rest of the world, then they fly into a rage. Up until this word, they listened to him, but then they raised their voices and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Here he is thinking, man, I've got them eating out of my hand. Now I'm going to share about the fact that their hearts are hardened. He is prayerful that the news that God doesn't want them, doesn't want Paul to be his minister to them, might convict them and compel them to listen and ask the question, why is it that God would send this scholar far away rather than staying here and witnessing to us? Could it be? Is it possible? Are we really that hardened? Are we that rebellious against Yahweh? But no. Paul shares the fact that God sent him far away, and rather than pondering the significance of that, the news that God was sending the gospel to the ends of the earth enraged them. Away with such a fellow. He should not be allowed to live. And here's Paul having to pivot in this moment. I've got them eating out of my hands. Maybe this is where I can begin to really press it home, that their heart is hardened, that they're not listening. And rather, their response is, kill this guy. Dashed expectations. It's not going to work out the way that he had hoped. And so as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, I mean, we have here a picture of people that have absolutely lost their minds. They have flown into a frenzy. As that is going on, verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Do you know what is most poignant about this? People who truly walk with the Lord know that God has a heart not only for us here, but for all the earth. When they heard that God was sending Paul, a man that they did know and had previously respected, to the ends of the earth, they yelled and they tore their garments, they flung dust into the air, they cursed him. What a picture of frenzied hatred. And what is their hatred all about? What really ignites their rage, the fact that Paul is being sent to the rest of the earth. The favor and the protection of the God who, as their own prophets had taught them, was the God of the whole earth and revealed him to Israel, that Israel might reveal him to the world, this God is actually following through on that plan. Rather than just favoring Israel, he is now trying to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The less they entered into a true possession, into a true relationship with Jesus, the less they entered into it, the more savagely they resented those who would share it with others. The more their religion became a mere outward external thing, the more they snarled at anyone who proposed to present it and share it with others to seek to keep religious blessings to one's self is a conclusive proof that they are not really in possession of what they claim to have, which is a relationship with God. Now Paul is being dragged into the barracks. The mob is outside. He's being brought inside. Okay, well, what's going to happen now? The text tells us. The tribune is so curious and puzzled about what the dialogue was. Remember, Paul has been speaking to them in Aramaic, and the tribune probably does not understand Aramaic and isn't entirely sure of the testimony that Paul has been giving to the mob. He hears Paul talking and talking and talking and talking, and they're listening this whole time. All of a sudden, they fly into a rage, not understanding what has just happened. He arrests Paul. He has him in chains. He brings him into the barracks. And now he needs to find out what it was that he just said to the mob that drove them into this frenzy. Now, to prepare a man for flogging takes a little bit of doing. 
You got to find those chains. You got to break out the whip. You got to take him into the post where you're going to chain him. You have to remove the clothing from his back. You have to get ready to strike him. What is bizarre about this transition of events is that Paul says nothing this whole time. They are dialoguing with each other about the fact that they need to examine him by means of flogging. And as they're taking him to be flogged in order to find out the truth of what he has said, he can hear their language. He understands and he speaks Greek. He knows what they're going on about. And yet he says nothing. They take him to the post. They chain him up. They stretch him out. The whip is in hand. The strike is about to fall. And in this moment, Paul says, oh, wait a second, guys. I got a question. Is it okay for you to do this to me because I'm a Roman citizen? I'm sure you didn't know that, but I am. And immediately everybody says, whoa, wait a second. Wait, whoa. And immediately the guy, the the Roman soldier, goes to speak to the tribune. If If you follow along, verse 26, when the centurion had heard this, he went to the tribune and he said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. In the empire, within the Roman domain, it was illegal for anyone, including Roman soldiers, to do anything to a Roman citizen. Rome, in conquering the nations, had established a worldwide peace. It wasn't an uneasy peace. People didn't necessarily like the rule of Rome. Don't get me wrong. Nevertheless, through superior military dominance, they had established a peace. And as a condition of this peace, economics could continue, bartering, trading, selling, the movement of goods from one region to the next. Even to a certain extent, you could practice your religion, your faith. You had to pay homage to Caesar, but you could still retain whatever religion, whatever faith you had previously. And the one catch was this. Roman citizens get to go anywhere and do anything And you cannot do anything to them, including Roman soldiers, unless there has been a trial, they have been properly charged and convicted on the basis of evidence. The centurion sees Paul testifying in a language he doesn't understand. Immediately the crowd flies into an uproar. He brings him inside, takes his clothes off, chains him to the post, gets out the whip. Here's the plan, boys. We're going to beat him until he tells us what it is that he was saying to those guys outside. Paul allows all of this to unfold without a word. And just as the lash is about to be applied, hey, you know I'm a citizen, right? Ah, would have been good for you to have mentioned that previously. He flies to the tribune. He says, this guy is a citizen. The tribune is so alarmed because even though they have not yet laid a hand on him, the fact that they were about to lay a hand on him could get them all in serious trouble. So the tribune comes now to make sure he understands the situation. The top dog comes down from his office upstairs and says, hey, I need to speak to you about this. And he says to him, are you, tell me the truth, is is it true that you are a Roman citizen? And Paul answers very simply, yep, that's right. The tribune says, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. During the days of Claudius, it was possible for individuals to purchase citizenship as a result of giving, cam- giving contributions to uh, various governors. It was considered a corrupt practice. Nevertheless, it happened. You were issued a certificate. The certificate served as a legal document that proved that you were, in fact, a Roman citizen. And it gave you certain rights and privileges, obviously. The tribune says, I have this citizenship. He had to pay dearly for it. In making this statement to Paul, he is seeking to understand the nature of Paul's citizenship. Is this a purchased citizenship? Is this a legitimate citizenship? Or are you a citizen from birth? That's the implication. You see, everybody around the empire knew that there was a bit of corruption involved in the purchasing of citizenship, in the trading, the giving and the taking of these pieces of paper. Sure, there were advantages to it, but it was corrupt, and everybody knew it was corrupt. But if Paul is a citizen by birth, that means there are people in positions of authority who will know him and who will know his family. If he is a citizen by birth, then his citizenship is attested. Somewhere out there, he's from some city, and the people in that city will know him and will know of his citizenship And there will be no skirting around the issue. There will be no possibility for the tribune to say, 
I wasn't really sure of his claim to citizenship because there's a little bit of corruption involved with this. And so Paul answers the question, I am a citizen by birth. Those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a citizen and that he had bound him. The simple fact of arresting him gets everyone into trouble. Now, what's really fascinating about this, Paul is utilizing the opportunity in front of the crowd to share the gospel with the crowd. And now, having been brought into the barracks, the crowd is no longer present. And now he has an opportunity to begin sharing the gospel with his captors. And he chooses here to disclose to them that he is a citizen. Upon disclosing of this information that he is a citizen, they are immediately respectful of him, to put it mildly. They're terrified of what they've just done. And the last thing they want is they don't want him to start writing letters to the governor from whatever city he's from, letting him know what's happened to him, because then that would mean all of their heads. Are they interested in what Paul has to say in this moment? You betcha. Are they respectful of who he is in this moment? You betcha. Are they curious now in a respectful, humble way to hear what he had just finished saying to all of those Jews outside? You betcha. They are now a willing audience for the gospel. And in fact, that's what verse 30 tells us. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, the tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. He brought Paul down and he set him before them. He wants to hear the facts of the case. Paul is about to give his testimony again in front of all of these Romans. In each of these moments, as the situations are drastically shifting, Paul is constantly trying to evaluate what do I do right here in this moment that will be most advantageous for the gospel. Now you may recall, if you've been watching Paul through the book of Acts, that there was a moment in which he gladly underwent the flogging. He underwent it willingly. Some of you are like, we've been a month now out of the book of Acts. We've been doing Easter stuff. My memory's kind of vague. When, when exactly did this happen? I want you to stick your thumb here, and I want you to go with me back to Acts chapter 16, when Paul is in Philippi. Go all the way back to Acts chapter 16. This is where he witnesses to Lydia, who is a merchant of purple goods, This is where the demon-possessed girl is following them around and, and saying that they are messengers of the Most High, and he casts the demon out. This is where they are eventually locked up in jail. There is an earthquake that rattles the jail to pieces, and the jailer, thinking they had all fled, is about to kill himself, and then Paul cries out at the last moment, don't do that, we're still here. And he shares the gospel with the jailer, and the jailer gets saved as well. In the midst of all of this, they come and they flog him. Verse 34, they brought them up into his house. This is the jailer. They set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed God. This is the jailer's family getting saved. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Verse 37, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, sir, no. Let them come themselves and take us out. Paul is saying, "Mm, no, there's going to be a reckoning for what just happened. Now, Paul is aware of his rights all the way up through the beating. The question is, when he's before the Roman tribune in Acts chapter 22, he stops the beating before it happens. He mentions that he's a Roman citizen. And yet here in Acts chapter 16, when he is arrested, he is beaten. And even though he is well aware of his rights, he says nothing. Why? Look at what happens next, verse 38. 
The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. That's convenient. We're so sorry. We're in trouble. We know it. Can you, can you just leave now and, and just disappear, and this problem will just kind of go away and be behind us? They asked them to leave the city. Now, Paul doesn't agree to these terms. Look at what he does next, verse 40. They went out of the prison. They did not leave the city. Instead, it says they visited Lydia, the first convert that they had made, the wealthy merchant from Thyatira who was undoubtedly hosting the church in her home. They go and they visit her, and it says when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and then departed. Now, Philippi is a small town. As I'm sure you're well aware, it's not like the big cities we have today where everybody has cars and there's freeways and roads everywhere. Everywhere you went in a city was on foot. This was a small town compared to what we have today. When they ask them to leave the city, they're hoping that they will just go quietly and that will be the end of the matter. The magistrates come, bring them out of the prison. Paul goes to the house church. Do you think every citizen and every resident in the city of Philippi took notice of that? You bet they did. And do you think from that moment forward, the magistrates were very, very cautious around Lydia and the church that was meeting in her home? You bet they were. Many scholars reflecting on this passage understand that what Paul was doing was he was extending an advantage to the church in Philippi by undergoing the beating and then claiming his legal right as a Roman citizen to be exempt from such beating after the fact to put the Roman authorities in a jam so that they would be very, very cautious and hesitant to torture or persecute or in any way cause any kind of trouble for the church in Philippi. Paul then is using his beating to extend protection and shelter to the church. But in Jerusalem, it's different. In Jerusalem, the Jews do not care for Roman law. They are not mindful of the Roman overlords. They are a mob. And if they can't get away with stoning an individual, as we've seen previously, they will which means that now in this particular situation, he knows that undergoing the beating is not going to somehow secure some sort of advantage or some sort of blessing for the church in Jerusalem, but undergoing the beating is only going to be painful for him. As he is before the Roman authorities, he waits until the last second. And do you know why he's waiting? Because he's thinking it through. What decision do I make in this moment? that will further the gospel. And he has right up until the moment they strike him to decide. And he's waiting, and he's praying, and he's thinking about it. And then, at the last moment, he says, oh, by the way, is it right for you to do this to a citizen? And now he has an audience before the Sanhedrin and all of the Romans to tell them the gospel. In Philippi, there was an advantage to be gained for the church. There's no such advantage to be gained here. But what I want you to see is that in both instances, whether he's witnessing to the Jews or whether he's preparing to witness to the Romans, Paul's own body, the punishment that comes from the beating that he is to receive in sharing the gospel, his own body is a part of his stewardship of the message of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just throw himself into it with all his heart and mind. He throws himself into it with his heart, his mind, and his body. This is a spiritual principle that Jesus talked about. In the Gospel of John, just before Jesus is to be crucified, Jesus makes the statement In John chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life, hear Jesus carefully now, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The principle that Jesus is giving to us, which Paul is perfectly imitating, is that a commitment to the gospel, to preaching the gospel, will come with suffering. In the same way that a plant needs water to grow, the idea that Jesus is presenting here is that the gospel will be watered with anguish, with the anguish and the suffering of the saints who proclaim it. It's hard to accept this lesson that Jesus gives us from an agricultural harvest. Death is more than a way to life, Jesus is teaching us. It is the secret of fruitfulness. Unless the seed falls into the ground and dies, that kernel of wheat remains but a single seed. If it stays alive, it stays alone. But if it dies, it multiplies. First and foremost, Jesus was obviously referring to himself and his own death. He was about to be glorified in death. Soon he would be lifted up on the cross and he would draw all people and all nations to himself. But Jesus wasn't just speaking about himself only. He was also giving all of us this general principle and he went on to apply it to his disciples who must follow him and become like him, denying themselves. Paul is probably the most notable example of this principle being played out in the life of the early church. Consider these three passages. Don't flip there, just listen. Writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. He is saying to them, don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged when you see me suffering for you. Don't lose heart. Recognize this as in some way giving glory to you, the church. He goes on in Colossians. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He himself takes joy in his suffering for the church. He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Whoa, that is an incredible statement. And again, in 2 Timothy, writing to young Timothy, he says, remember Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel and for which I am suffering. He writes this as he's in prison. He says, I am bound with chains as a common criminal, but the word of God isn't bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In every single one of those passages, as Paul is explaining to these different churches the nature of his ministry, in every single one, he says, I am suffering, I am under afflictions, I am being persecuted. He makes a statement in the letter to the Colossians, I am filling up whatever was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church. Now, in that statement, he is not saying that his suffering in any way has any sort of atoning significance. He's not paying for the sins of other people. But when he makes the statement, my suffering is your glory for the church, it is for you, he is saying that there is a weight, there is a gravity, there is a beauty that is, a, that is presented to the church when a man is willing to suffer on behalf of the church. When you love someone, you give yourself for that person. And the more you pour yourself out, the more you show your love. That shows the loveliness of the one for whom you are serving. Jesus Christ's death on the cross makes us righteous. It makes us lovely. But his saints will continue to preach the gospel that the elect may be saved. At the end of time, it is not merely the death of Christ that contributed to the salvation of the saints. 
It was the death of Christ and only the death of Christ that atones for our sins. But God has been pleased through the suffering of his church down through the ages to work through the testimony of the church to continue bringing his elect to salvation. God shows his love for us in that he dies for us. And if we have a heart like what God's heart is, we will be prepared to serve one another in proclaiming the gospel even to the point of physical suffering. That is a glory to the church. And Paul's statement is, you should rejoice in that. He says, don't lose heart, number one. And number two, he says, I rejoice in it. It is my joy in serving my family to serve them for their blessing. And it is my joy in loving my daughters and my wife and my household. It is my joy, and it doesn't happen often, but it is my joy to sacrifice for them. My kids know that I will do just about anything for them. My kids understand that I love them. I take them to Dairy Queen, I spend money, I give them an ice cream cone. Thanks, Dad. And then they ask me the next day, hey, can we go to Dairy Queen? I don't have any money for Dairy Queen. Aw, but you bought us Dairy Queen yesterday. They understand that they're, I mean, they're growing into this understanding. They understand that there's a cost involved in something simple like purchasing ice cream for them. A while back, my kids left without my permission or my knowledge to ride their bikes at the skate park at MacArthur Island. It's not a dangerous place to be, but it can be. If you go at the wrong time of day, if the wrong crowd is there, it can be dangerous. I did not know where they went. I was in the backyard mowing the grass. You come inside, drink water, where are the kids? The kids are gone. First thought, I'm not going to lie. Shanti's going to get home soon and she's going to kill me. (laughs) That's the dad thought, like, what's my wife going to say? Oh, yeah, yeah, and my kids are in danger. I have to find them. So what did I do? I took off in my truck. I'm driving all over the streets of my neighborhood looking for them on their bikes. I'm driving up and down Tranquil around all that mess of traffic that's over there. And every single moment that goes by, more and more I'm fearing for my safety of my kids. I want to know where they are. I come home. They're back from the skate park. It wasn't the calmest conversation we've ever had. but they knew that I loved them. They came home, and I took another three or four hours before I came home. They were in their bedrooms playing, having a good time, had forgotten that they'd even gone to the skate park by the time I got home. Ashanti had come home. I had texted her furiously. My wife sometimes doesn't turn her phone on. Finally, I come home. Where have you been this whole time? Where have you been this whole time? I share this with you because in that moment, my kids know that I love them. I'd driven around for five hours looking for them. Four and a half, four and a half. And not been able to find them. Was that suffering? It it felt really bad in the moment. I'm not going to lie. But then my kids stopped to think about it. Dad was gone for four and a half hours looking for us. Would you do that again? Yeah, I would. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And then he sends people to you. 
as though his death on the cross were not enough. He delights to call his sons and daughters to suffer and bleed and at times die for you. He gives everything for you because he loves you. This last year, we've been told that the most loving thing we can do is to stay away from our neighbors. We are already inclined not to share the gospel. We already have a heart that is reluctant to be truthful with our neighbors about their spiritual condition. And now, our laziness in evangelism has been blessed by the world through the veneer of this whole COVID-19 thing where the most loving thing we can do is not talk to each other and not visit each other and not see each other. As though the church needed further reasons not to share their faith. This morning, what I want to impress upon you is that the most important thing for our neighbors to know is that they are not going to go to heaven when they die unless they hope in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul gives us this incredible example. In every situation, in every circumstance, as his situation is changing minute by minute, he is working to proclaim the gospel to whomever he is facing, wherever he is. And he is using everything at his disposal, including his Roman citizenship, if that will help him to share his faith. We have a driveway right next door to another driveway. Do you know what's involved in me sharing the faith with my neighbor? About 25 steps to his front door. Have you shared the gospel with your neighbor? Are you fearful that he might freak out and say, whoa, where's your mask? Put a mask on. Is wearing a mask that much more than taking a beating? We need to start sharing our faith. We need to start telling people about Jesus Christ. We need to stop being indifferent to their suffering. You see, they don't know that they're lost. They don't understand that they're in chains. They don't fully appreciate the hardness of their life. In many ways, they've accepted what is as what is. But we know the truth. Do we love them the way that Christ loved us? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Let's love our neighbors. Let's not be indifferent to their suffering. Let's not accept the lie that they present to us of what they think is in their own best interests. Let's share the gospel. Let's do it today. Say, how can we do that? I know most of you are on Facebook or social media. Pastor Al has written a very beautiful, two beautiful, in fact, two amazing testimonies to the gospel. This is what I would encourage you to do as you leave here today. Go home on social media, go to our church Facebook page or the church website, look up those two different gospel testimonies that Pastor Al has written, send it to all of your friends in a Facebook messenger chat, and then ask to have coffee with them and start scheduling conversations where you can start calling out for people to trust in Jesus Christ. Beloved, let us love one another. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we work our way through this passage this morning, our prayer is that you would impress on our hearts once again 
even though the world is gripped in the midst of this pandemic and is living in fear, Lord, we know that real salvation is not found anywhere but your son, Jesus Christ. And even though much of society has been ordered to shut down as a result of this pandemic, Lord, in heaven, you have not called a halt to the Great Commission. For the danger never subsides. And the greatest danger we ever face is the danger of being separated from you for all of eternity. God, help us to not be like the Jews who were enraged at the prospect that God would call for his gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Help us, rather, to be like the Apostle Paul, who used everything he had at his disposal, everywhere he went, for an opportunity to show the love that you have for him and for the world in sending your son Jesus to die for us. We pray, God, that you would help mold us and make us like Paul, and we also pray that you would give us opportunities to share the good news. We ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.